This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Well, today what we're going to do is open the third and the final chapter of our men's fraternity journey together. And I want you to think back. The first third had to do with uh, us learning how we could improve or at least strengthen our relational skills with that person who is the most important person in our life. And for most of us, that is our wife. For some of you guys, it may be your girlfriend right now. But we spent the first third of our journey together focusing on the woman in our life. The second chapter dealt with um, the key issues around our home, especially as it related to our sons and daughters and how to engage them and how to raise them in a way that would be strategic and we could deposit specific kinds of investments in them during that time that would last a lifetime. And then now in this uh, final chapter, this third chapter, what we're going to do is turn our attention to an area that possesses most of our time, and that is the world of work. Now, you may recall that when we began our journey, uh, we made the assumption that every man has two major mirrors in his life, thus our little stage set that's behind me. Two major mirrors in his life, whereby a man can look at himself every day, take a personal evaluation of himself every day, two mirrors where he can size himself up, where we can draw our self-worth and our self-esteem from, where we can measure, in a sense, our, our real-time happiness right now. We can look in that mirror, one of those two mirrors, and immediately they reflect back to us how we're really doing, how we're really feeling. These two mirrors we call the mirror of work and the mirror at home. And for most of us to really feel good about our lives, in fact, I'd say for every man to really feel good about his life, he's got to win in both mirrors, not one over the other. He's got to win in both. thought we would start session 11 here by reviewing the first mirror that we call the mirror at home. We spent 10 weeks in that mirror. And every day a man faces this mirror and he asks the question. Remember, we walked over to the mirror and we look in it and we go, mirror, mirror on the wall, am I doing any good at all? And we look in that mirror to see what kind of feedback we're going to get to feel good about ourselves. And what comes back or what's reflected back to us in that mirror is either things that will energize us and build us up or will slap us in the face and it beats us down. We go away not feeling good about ourselves at all. Home, the mirror of home, is a powerful masculine mirror of self-worth for a man. And if nothing else, I hope, if you, you went through the first semester with us, if you didn't get anything else, I hope you know that a good reflection in this mirror doesn't just happen. You don't get a good reflection in this mirror just by showing up every day. You don't get a good reflection in this mirror just by doing 
what comes naturally. I tell you, if there's anything I hope you learned last semester is that when we do things naturally, guys, it's lethal, isn't it? So here's the secret of the first mirror. When it comes to home, the difference between the average man, listen, the difference between the average man and the man who wins big is often in a few small, unnatural, but on-target behavioral adjustments that that man chooses to make. I want you to look at the, look at the secret there of the first mirror. And let's just let that soak in for a moment. And I want to call to your mind specifically a few words in that statement. First of all, look at the words few and small. See them there? Have you noticed, guys, that greatness, the thing that separates greatness from average, is often in just a few small things? Small but very significant things, by the way. But still, nonetheless, a few small things. For instance, you know the difference between a good high school receiver and an NFL receiver? You know what the difference is? Oftentimes it's in five-tenths of a second in the 40. That's the difference. For the most part, they can have even the same skill base. But the difference is in the five-tenths five of a second called speed. You know what the difference is between a guy who goes to a state school and one who goes to Harvard University? Usually about five points on an ACT test. Few small points. And often, very often, the difference between being a great husband at home and an ordinary bumbling one is in a few small but on-target behaviors. And that's what we talked about last semester. A few small but very significant behaviors. Like when you stop guessing, you finally figured out that you got, you got to stop guessing at your wife's needs and you finally go and ask and figure out what her top two or three needs are in her life, and then you begin to focus on meeting those needs. That's a small adjustment with a huge impact. Or you take the time to discover what her love language is. Remember we talked about that last semester? And then you start speaking it often because every time you do, you fill up her love tank. Or you master her personality type. And then spend the rest of your life learning how strategically to adjust to that personality which is not going to change rather than do what so many average ordinary men do. And that is spend most of their life trying to change her while she's trying to change you. And that creates a mess, not a great home. Or you stop trying to win arguments and you finally figured out, like we did last semester, that the best way is to look for that, that special, rich, fertile middle ground where everyone wins. Or you finally stop just hanging around your kids and you finally get a game plan together, a specific game plan in order to raise them up as great sons and great daughters. Listen, guys, greatness at home comes in little things like these. 
a few small things that are very, very significant and strategic. On the other hand, if you want to be average or you want to be awful at home, you can ignore them. It's your choice, and that's what the statement says. It's the secret of the first mirror. Now look, look at the statement again. There's another word I want to focus on. You see it there? It's the word unnatural. You might even underline it on your outlines, the word unnatural. This takes us all the way back to the paradox principle that we lear learned about in session one. You remember that paradox principle? Remember the first question that the paradox principle asked? It asked the question, do I get it? And it always asked that question when I encounter some significant and critical area of my life, like my marriage, or as we're going to learn in this semester, like my work. But the first question the paradox principle asks is, do you get it? And the smart man always answers this way, no, I don't. And what that does, it immediately puts that man in a posture of learning which is the right posture to be in anytime you move into a critical area of life. So when it comes to engaging a woman rightly or raising kids successfully or trying to overcome mistakes that you've made in the past in the area of the home, it's always, I don't really get it, but I want to learn. But that's an unnatural response. But it's also the right response. Because being successful at home, and you can write this down, being successful at home is unnatural to a man. The truth is every man has to be humble enough to learn and then practice, listen guys, a few small unnatural skills. Everybody get that? I can't say it enough. But if you practice a few small unnatural skills, you'll go to this mirror and ask the question, am I doing any good at all? And that mirror is going to turn back to you and go. It'll give you a thumbs up. And you'll walk out of your home and into your work, well, work world with your chest up, your head high, feeling energized to tackle this other world. But if you just kind of do it naturally at home. If you just show up, this mirror is going to frown on you and the energy is going to go out of you like air out of a tire and you're going to have less to give over here. That's what we talked about last semester. Winning at home. Now with that said, what I'd like to do is turn the corner. It's a pretty hard turn here in this second semester. We want to turn the corner and now and go over and look at this second mirror, the mirror of work. And it's a very, of course, we all know this. It's a very, very significant world that we live in, the world of work. And it can be crazy in there. I mean, you can go look in this mirror and all kinds of things are happening both personally and professionally. You work among people and sometimes those people act crazy, which Makes you crazy. I read uh, recently and kind of laughed at some of the management memos that sometimes are sit, sent down to employees like us. Here's one of them from Microsoft. The manager sends this memo that says, as of tomorrow, employees will only be able to access the building using individual security cards. Pictures will be taken next Wednesday. And employees will receive their cards in two weeks. Hmm. That's a crazy maker. 
Here's one from UPS. This subject is important. We can't let things that are more important interfere with it. Here's one from AT&T. Manager writes, we know that communication is a problem, but this company is not going to discuss it with its employees. <laughs> See, we go to work and we encounter things like that. It makes us crazy. But it also tells us this, work is work. Work is also, however, very personal. And there are times when you and I are going to look in that mirror and we're going to have all kinds of intense feelings staring back at us. And even as I say these, some of you are going to feel your heart get real tight. We'll look in that mirror and the mirror will look back at us and it'll say this. I'm really in a rut here. What do I do? Well, the mirror will look back at us and say, my boss doesn't have a clue what I'm capable of. I'm micromanaged here and I'm suffocating. I'm scared to death to do something new, but I hate what I'm doing now. No one really values or appreciates me here. I'm bored. Every day I come here and I'm just bored. There's got to be more to life than this. Am I really making a difference here? Maybe you look in the mirror and the mirror says to you, you know, you're really successful. So why aren't you happy? Man, that brings work right into our chest, doesn't it? All of a sudden, it's up close and personal. We've all been there had we? We've all had at least some of those feelings at some time in our life. And I hope as we go through the next five weeks after today, uh, a lot of you, if, if I do a good job, are going to get some fresh perspectives on work. Uh, maybe it'll open your eyes to some broader perspectives and give you a way of evaluating yourself. Because let me tell you, one of the goals I have in mind, if nothing else, it's to launch you out courageously to make whatever adjustments you need to make so when you look in this mirror, this mirror will smile back at you. It's really important. Perhaps a few introductory thoughts about work would be helpful at this point. I want you to look at your outlines. I've listed what I call some quick overview statements there. This, this is kind of like flashbulbs going off. It's kind of all over the place, but it just gives us kind of a, a flyby of work with these statements to help us get started in our journey. Here's the first one. Most men define themselves by what they do. A few months ago, I was part of a, re of a reunion of the 1969 Arkansas-Texas football game. And so up in Fayetteville, the Arkansas team and the Texas team got together and got to know each other other than on that field in 1969. And I remember walking into that reunion and when you walk in, of course, you go over to some of your teammates and you greet your old friends, and then you go over and greet the Texas guys and begin to make some new friends. But like in any conversation, man to man, they always start the same way after you introduce yourself. Your next statement is what? What do you do? Or in the case of my old buddies from Arkansas, what are you doing now? 
And the reason we do that is because that's how men define themselves. They define themselves by what they do. We're action figures. We're performance-driven. Accomplishing something, doing something, is part of the masculine DNA. It's how we size each other up, isn't it? It's how we pick our friends and who we want to hang around with. And probably at the very core, most of us know this, when any man quits working, he starts dying. That's how important work is. It's our identity. Look at letter B. According to psychology today, one's career is probably the most important influence on one's perception of quality of life. In fact, psychology today found that one's career, at least in a man's case, meant more to him deeply than even a good social life or even parenting or even his religion. Now you may say, that's not true of me. Well, you may be one that that doesn't apply to, but overall, the intense feelings about work transcend almost everything else. A man's work and a man's sense of well-being or a sense of self-esteem, those two things, his work and his sense of well-being, those two things are best friends. And they tend to walk together through life. Letter C, men spend more time in the workplace than anywhere else. Here are kind of the general percentages of, of how we spend our time as men. 60 to 65% of our time is at work. 30 to 35% of our time is with family and personal interest. And either none to 10% of our time is in church activities. But if you just look at the percentages, if we define ourselves as men, most of who we are and where we spend our time and how we experience life is in the workforce. Letter D, according to a Gallup survey, almost 80% of men feel miscast in their jobs. Gosh, that's amazing. You may have come in here this morning, and uh, when we start talking about work, you go, you know, I don't feel like I'm a fit with my job. Hey, there are a lot of men here. You're not alone that feel that way. A job fit is a huge issue for a man. And the truth is, most men either feel misplaced or underutilized in their job. It's a subject we're going to talk about in specific in the next few weeks. But for now, I want you to listen to Stephen Covey. He's the one who authored the best-selling book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He said this, Despite all our gains in technology, product innovation, and world markets, most people are not thriving in the organizations they work for. They are neither fulfilled or excited. They are frustrated. And most of all, they don't feel they can change much. That may be you. But finding a fit is critical to how you feel when you look at that mirror. Letter E. Today, finding a deeper meaning and purpose at work is becoming more and more important for those in a career or choosing one. You know, today, they're finding that People's mindset, their psyche has changed in regards to work. People today want more than a job. Our dads or our granddads, they were just glad to have a job. 
But people today want more than a job. They want purpose. Did you know the fastest growing MBA programs in America are the nonprofit MBA programs where business students pack even Ivy League schools in these programs because they want a career with a cause where the final numbers are purpose? Those are the fastest growing MBA programs. Forbes magazine recently said this. It said the quality revolution of the 90s has now moved into the age of meaning. People want purpose. And then the article ends this way. Bet your business on it. What really excites employees today is, I know I'm doing something that's worthwhile. Management has to help them know what's really worthwhile. Letter F, work and work-related issues are chief topics of the Bible. The Bible addresses work even more than it does the family. Isn't that amazing? Even more than it does the family. If you took your Bible, if we just stopped here and you took your Bible today and opened your Bible, you know what you're going to do? You're going to open to a God who is at work. That's the first thing you encounter, a God who's working. And after He creates the man as male and before He creates the man as female, He puts that man to work. He gives him a job title. He's called gardener. He gives him a job description. His two points are, you're supposed to cultivate this garden. That is to develop it. Make it really flourish. And you're also to keep it. That is, you're to protect it. That was his job description. He's given a benefit package. God tells him, hey, from any tree in this garden, you can eat. It's profit sharing here. Enjoy it. He's given an expansion plan. He's told later that in order to help this thing develop, God's going to give him some additional help. In fact, that help is going to be called helper later on. He's given a long-range vision on this job. God says, I want you to take this garden and what you're learning and doing here, and I want you to expand it out worldwide. Take it to the whole earth. All that. And we're not even past chapter 2 in Genesis. It's amazing, isn't it? The point is, work is a huge issue to God. The Bible's filled with verses about work and work-related issues. And just on sheer volume alone, every guy in the room needs to know, work is very important to God. Which leads us to letter G. 90% of all Christians have never read a book heard a sermon, or listened to a tape that focuses specifically on the workplace. Now that's according to Doug Sherman and Bill Hendricks in their book, Your Work Matters to God. And when I read that, I thought, well, I'm going to test that. Because I've been here since almost the beginning of the church, so I went back and got the tape catalog of our church, all the sermons that have been preached in 27 years. And it's fairly quick. You can thumb through it and look at all the topics and read what the sermons were on. I read through 27 years of sermons preached from this pulpit. Guess how many sermons were preached specifically on the subject of work? 27 years. One. One. And when, I, when I saw that, I, I thought, wow, really is true. We, 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 we 
we do sermons that, that, that relate to work. I mean, there's, there's, there's comments about work, and from time to time you, you, you'll have a little moment where you focus on work, but specifically bearing down on work, one sermon here in 27 years, which no doubt contributes to letter H, which says, many Christian men do not know how to take Jesus Christ with them to work. Therefore, Jesus is left home in the workplace becomes a spiritually barren, secular experience for most Christian men. Because we, we, we don't know how to, to take the things that we're learning from the Scriptures and integrate them. So my work and my faith, unfortunately, become two separate worlds. And, and for a lot of guys, they step out of this role of being a man who has certain principles and ethics and Christian convictions, and as he walks into the work world, all those clothes fall off, and he puts on new clothes, and he acts in new ways that don't necessarily relate to the world he just walked out of. He's a totally different guy here than he is here, and no one's helping him to connect those two worlds. Some of you guys identify with that? And that's why sometimes I'll hear of someone who's a part of this particular church body, and I'll have somebody say, yeah, I, I was watching them on the job, and they go to your church? And I wince, and they wince, and I get the message. <laughs> Lastly, letter I, many Christian men have haunting, unanswered questions when it comes to their work. Questions such as, is there one right job for me? Does my work really matter to God? I mean, let's face it. Does, that, does God really care about heating units? Does God really care about installing computer systems or managing a, a clothing store or developing real estate? Sometimes a Christian guy can look at that kind of question because he's employed in that kind of career and feel like this doesn't count for anything. I think that's a wrong view, and we'll talk about that later. Another question is, how much does God work at work? <laughs> that's a question one corporate executive recently asked me. He, did, he, he, he was just probing me. He said, does Christianity really work in the workplace? Do Christian principles work there all the time? If I were really following those principles, do you think I could be as successful as I am now? Does God really work in the workplace? Could you trust Him there? That was his question. And finally, how much work is too much? Those are all good questions. And I hope you're going to get some good answers in the weeks ahead. Now, in the time we have left, I want to focus on three specific items there. Uh, you'll see them in your outline. The motivations behind our work, what we want from our work, and what we need to have in order to get what we want from our work. So look at the diagram that's there that talks about the motivations for work. There are eight of them. The question is, what is really behind our eight to five effort every day? You know, I, I, I just start thinking, I don't think I've ever sat and thought about that. What's really behind my effort every day as I go to work? The question is, why do we go to work? What's moving us, motivating us, driving us when we walk into the workforce. Here are some motivations, I think, 
that answer that question. Here's the first one. Because I have to. (laughs) Because I have to. I will never forget my senior year in college. Now, I'd been on a college scholarship, an athletic scholarship. My folks had given me some fun money and stuff. And I think my first three years, I never even thought about what I was going to do with my life. I was just in college enjoying it. And I remember my senior year started and I got this awkward phone call from my mom. I'm sure it was hard for her as a mom to say this, but we talked on the phone and she said, Robert, I want you to know that financially when, when you finish college, we're done. <laughs> now mentally, mentally, if you would have asked me that before she called, I would have told you I expected that. I knew I needed to get a job. But for mom to tell me that, all of a sudden I realized I really do have to go to work. I realized I have to if I'm going to make it in life. And that was kind of a scary moment for me. There's another motivation that's a little bit of a step up from having to. It's where you want to. It's the motivation because I desire to meet my needs and the needs of my family. Not because I have to. I really want to do that. I'm I'm motivated to do that. Then there's a third reason. Because I desire to have a certain standard of living. You know, what pushes a lot of guys in the workforce is a dream. It's a dream that, that they've had maybe even since childhood that they desire a certain standard of living, certain things. They've got a certain image. And that may have developed out of childhood because they didn't have those things. And and they've got a hunger for those things. It may be because of the expectations they were placed on them. Some of these dreams can be healthy. Some of these dreams can be unhealthy. But let me tell you, every guy in this room has a dream about what his work's supposed to be about. A standard of living that he wants to obtain. And if he's getting there, he feels better about himself. If he's not... It's crushing to his spirit. But it's that dream oftentimes that drives a guy every day. He says, I'm going to get there and get these things. Work is just the means to that standard of living. Then work becomes more than just the means. Work sometimes can become really the main motivation. That's the next level up. Because I desire to accomplish something that's meaningful to me. I like to work especially if I get to do something I really want to do. Teddy Roosevelt once said, the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. He said, that's the best prize of life. Where I finally have got something that I really want to do. It's not the money that I'm making. It's not the standard of living I'm after. It's the personal fulfillment of of doing this thing whatever this thing is. And by the way, if that becomes one of your motivations, then inevitably, especially as a young man, you're going to face a crisis in your life because most of us start life having to work, taking the first job we can get. And then at some place, that desire to do something meaningful will bring us to a crossroads because then we've got to decide if we're going to leave the safety of the job I've got and jump to something that's meaningful to me. Or I'm going to walk in even when I'm really succeeding and making a lot of money and, and, and tell my company I'm leaving because even though I'm doing well, this doesn't mean anything to me. 
But that's a scary moment. And many guys face that moment because they finally tap into this motivation. Then another motivation is this, because I seek to do something through my work that is helpful and of service to others. It's at this level that I begin to feel a greater purpose in my work than just what's in it for me. Everything before that, every motivation before that is what's in it for me. When you reach this level, it's what can I actually do for others? It becomes more outward focused. Another motivation is because I can earn money that I can give to help others. Giving becomes a motivation for working. Another motivation is because I can earn money that I can give to advance God's kingdom on earth. And here, it's at this level, that my work and my spiritual beliefs begin to merge. Now, some guys, that's never an interest. But, but for a number of guys, they finally get to the place where their spiritual life and their work world begin to merge. And then lastly, because I can serve and glorify God in my work and spiritually impact people. And it's at this level that I'm motivated by spiritual opportunity, not just after work, but actually at work. Now, just for a moment, notice these eight motivations can be summarized into four drives. At the bottom end, we're paycheck driven. Okay? Uh, some of those motivations at the bottom end, we're just paycheck driven. Just give me the money. Show me the money. Okay? But then we move to the next level where we become more passion-driven, especially as our work begins to tap into these motivations where I think I can really do something meaningful and make a difference. And then as I make money and I can give things away and I can leverage my position to help others, I become philanthropy-driven. And then at the spiritual end, I find myself being purpose-driven. Now that just, that just gives us a portrait of why we work. And you can look at that for just a moment and kind of figure out where you are on that as I make the following observations. Here are four observations. First, I just want you to know, as you look at those motivations there on your outline, the Scripture affirms each one of those. In fact, I just want to do a little scriptural safari through these motivations and let you see that. For instance, on the first one, because I have to. Here's what the Scripture says. It says, but even when we were with you, this is Paul speaking, we used to give you this order and here's the order. It's kind of like mom calling me on the phone. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's from the apostle. You feel that? You have to. The next level, because I get to meet the needs of my family. Here's what the scripture says. It's one, by the way, this is one of the strongest statements in all the Bible. Right here. To men. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, if you're not a provider as a man, man, read those words. It's like a slap in the face. You've denied the faith. And you're worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty strong. Because I desire to have a certain standard of living. Here's what Ecclesiastes 5 said. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, any guy that works, he has also empowered him to eat from them. And to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. You know, when you go out and earn money and it helps you re reach that standard of living that you desire, the scripture says, good for you. That's a gift from God. Enjoy it. Because I desire to do something 
meaningful to me. The scripture says this, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. That's a great thing. The wisest man who ever lived said, Solomon, that's a good thing. That's a reward from the hand of God. How about the next level? Because I seek to do something through my work that's helpful and of service to others. Peter says it this way, as each one has received a special gift, everybody in here has been gifted by God with certain talents and abilities. The scripture says a good motivation is to employ it in serving other people. Good for you if you have that motivation. What about because I earn money that I can give to help others? The scripture affirms that too. It says, let a man work performing with his own hands what is good, but not just to consume it for himself, everything that he earns to just take for himself. No, he's to have something to share. He's to use part of that profit to give away to those people who have need. That's a good motivation. Or what about because I can earn money that I can advance God's kingdom here on earth? The scripture affirms that. In Proverbs it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. That's a good motivation. And then lastly, because I can serve and glorify God in my work. The scripture says that too. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. For those who reach this more purpose-driven level, they have a whole different understanding about work. They're not working for John Boss. It's the Lord God whom they serve. They think of it that way. And it's hard sometimes for us to tap into that level of motivation, but nonetheless, there it is. And we'll talk about that later. But here's what I want you to know. The scripture affirms every one of these motivations. Now look at your outline and let's make three other observations. Here they are. The more, listen guys, this is very important because I want you to evaluate yourself after the session on these observations. The more of these motivations a man has in his work, the more motivated he will be in his job. If you only have one or two of these motivations, you'll be motivated, but not nearly as motivated as the guy who has five or six of these motivations. Because he sees his work differently than you do. He goes to work with a different perspective than you do. He'll be more motivated. Notice also, the more of these motivations a man has in his work, the bigger perspective he will have to his job. The guy that is just a paycheck, he goes, and it doesn't really matter much about his job. It just matters about the money. That's, that, that's his world of work. It's this big. Okay? But as you go up the ladder of these motivations and he begins to see he can do something meaningful, then, then, then he can earn money to help people. Then he can give some of his money away to those who have, in, have need. Then he can advance God's kingdom. And, and, and the reality is he's an eternal creature working for God. And his job is just a gift from God that he can use to leverage kingdom power. Look at the difference in those perspectives. Then just show me the money. Everybody see that? And then lastly, the more success a man experiences with each of these motivations. That is, the more he can meet the needs of his family and the more he can do something meaningful, the more money he can earn to give away and do those things, the more personally fulfilled he will be in his work. Now I want you to look at that because after the session, as I said, I want you to go back to that and go, okay, how do I stack up? of why I work. Because you can look at that and measure yourself and some of you can immediately identify why you're not motivated to go to work today. 
or where you're stuck or what needs to change. And that's a good thing because smart men learn, put themselves in the posture to learn, and then make these strategic small moves that change their life. Well, let's move on and look at what men want from their work. I'm just going to briefly mention those. Like I said, this is an overview today. But here are some things I think every guy would want from his work. First, every man wants to be a success. <laughs> every man does. Who wants to go to work and not be a success? The worst feeling in the world is to know we're letting others down or we're holding the company back or we're under-exceeding. And so when the alarm goes off at 6.30 in the morning, the first thought we have is that we're not going to work, we're going to fail. That would be a horrible thing. Every man wants to be good at what he does. The second thing is we all want recognition. You know, years ago they did an employee survey that asked the question, what makes your job worthwhile? And there were eight items that made your job worthwhile listed that they gave to the employees that they could survey and list those eight items from most important to least important. What they didn't know is while they were taking that survey, management got the same survey and management was supposed to take the survey for the employees so they could compare the two. And after it was over, what they found was that management, what do you think management listed as the thing that made work most worthwhile for their employees? Money. The employees rank that third. And it was interesting that the number one thing that employees listed that made work worthwhile was being recognized at work for a job well done. Management rated that last, eighth in the items. I said in last year's men's fraternity on the quest for authentic manhood, men always go where the cheers are. You start telling the man he's doing good, encouraging, building him up, rewarding him with words and even compensation for a job well done, and the guy just works even harder because we go where the cheers are. We want recognition. We also want the right fit. We want the right fit. But that requires two things. It requires a strong personal assessment. And there are all kinds of assessment tools about what you're good at. But here's what I've learned about guys. Because a lot of times we're also dreamers. Guys like to know what they're good at. They hate to talk about what they're not good at. And yet to find a right fit, here's what I've discovered. It's kind of been a great revelation to me. To find the right fit on a job, you need to know who you are. But even more important than, than that is you need to know who you're not. So you can let that go. So many guys are just banging their head against the wall all the time in their work because they believe there's something that they're not. And they're never going to get there. They need to know who they are. And then once they know who they are, then they need to take the other step. And that is the courage to make whatever adjustments are necessary to get the right fit. Third, fourth, we all want fair compensation. We want to be paid well. And rightly. Fifth, we want community. We want workmates that we can enjoy and work alongside. And the more they share some of our personal values, the more enjoyable it is to go to work and be with them. And then lastly, we want balance. 
We want balance between our worlds, between home and work, and between home and, I mean, work and church, and between work and personal interests that we're involved in. We need balance. I, I, I will say this. I think balance is the hardest thing for a man personally because it always gets overridden by our desire to succeed. And success sometimes blinds us to balance. I remember years ago reading the story about Dick Vermeil. Many of you know Dick Vermeil as the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, but years ago he was the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And his goal was to always be, to always to win the Super Bowl. And so he would work day and night to win that Super Bowl. He slept in the stadium, he did everything he could, and then he finally won it. And then when next season was just about to begin, there was this giant press conference, and here comes Dick Vermeil looking haggard. He's crying. He gives this emotional resignation. I just can't do it anymore. Because he was so out of balance in his desire to succeed. He was losing his family. He was losing his kids. But one thing caught me in particular in the story in Sports Illustrated about this moment. It's when Dick Vermeil was riding into Philadelphia one day at the end of this resignation moment. He looked out and he saw the fall leaves changing colors. And he began to weep uncontrollably because he hadn't seen a fall in 10 years. You know why? Because he lived in the stadium. Now that's an extreme example. But it comes about because men have such an intense desire to succeed, it's very hard for them to create the kind of balance that they need. But we want it. It's just how do we get it? Well, that leads me to the last point. What a man needs to have in order to get what he wants from his work. I believe there are four things that you need. The first is we need a higher view of work. Because a large part of work, guys, is simply perspective. The story is told of the three bricklayers. And a man came and asked the first bricklayer, what are you doing? And he looked at him and said, I'm laying brick. Said to the second bricklayer, what are you doing? And this bricklayer said, I'm building a wall. And he turned to the third bricklayer and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm erecting a great cathedral for the worship and glory of God. Three different perspectives on the same task. And what I want you to know is every man needs a higher view of his work. I think it's God's view and I think it's a revolutionary idea. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Secondly, we need a courageous approach to work. And what I mean by that is, guys, don't settle for anything less in your life than the right fit. Because if you don't have the right fit, I'm not talking about the perfect fit, but the right fit. If you don't have the right fit, this mirror is never going to smile back at you. There's always going to be this gnawing sensation within that I'm just not there in my life. Third, we need a broader understanding of work. And what I mean by that is, believe it or not, work is more than just about work. Work is about you. Your character development. Your personal influence. The changes that need to take place because you're a creature that needs to be engaged with God there. And we want to talk about that, that broader understanding of work. But you need to know this, who you are is as important as what you do at work. 
We want to explore that a little bit in the weeks to come. And then lastly, we need a more purposeful interaction at work. And that's because eternal, eternal issues are being played out in the workforce every day. The only product at your work that has an eternal shelf life <laughs> is the people you work next to and the people you encounter in your job. There's no expiration date on people. There is on everything else. Yeah, people die, but the Scripture says they last forever. And because of just that fact, you have enormous spiritual opportunities at work. The question is, do you see those opportunities? And even if you saw them, here's the question, because work is a sensitive area, I know. How do you engage them in order to impact those eternal products? Most guys don't have a clue how to do that. And we want to explore that in depth. And I hope that I can help you see how you can do that in a way that's winsome and sensitive to the work environment. Well, look at those four things because it's going to be those four things that you and I are going to explore together over the next five weeks. But, but for now, I just want you to be encouraged in this. Guys, look at me. I just want you to know this as you leave today. Your work matters to God. It really does. What you do and how you do it and how you feel about it, all that matters to God. And if you don't believe that, then I'm going to prove it to you next week. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.